When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. The Stockroom by Laurie Sheck I watch the boy shoot up. His head woos his back, eyes fluttering lightly into what land, what dreamy repetition, separateness, deferment, grainy black and white of this sleep that is not sleep. He closes his eyes, but I still watch. I am a child. I do not know who he is or how he has wandered back into the stockroom of the store. I am supposed to be up front where it is light, helping to sell buttons, pencils, keys. I am supposed to walk around in the safe glare, the sharp-edged present tense. But here in this dim room behind the aisles, the boy crawls slowly toward the wall that used to be part of the bakery next door. Brick ovens, three feet deep, with rounded tops like quaint old-fashioned doorways, crumbling now and damp, his head swaying like a battered stalk. He leans back into the oven dark and shivers, scratches his cheek with one hand and then the other. He smooths his itchy skin, scaly, purplish-red, what tense is it he drifts in? What tense in which memories rise up disguised so they won't stun? Mixing with this musty air, these towers of cardboard boxes held in the eerie sway of so much want. What tense in which we sit, the boy and I, and do not speak, the dark like a god, and our small bodies like errors the god wants to take back again, out of his created world. And what tense in which the musty dampness holds the ovens like moldy, unrocked cradles, eye-holes, graves, and street cries skip and flare above our listening, but they are muffled from back here, as if they could not touch us, yet still here. The drawers of the cash registers clack open again and again like solved equations, while the boy breathes so softly, his hands clutched into fists now, as if trying to protect something hidden, keep it safe. There is the dark of his closed hands, there is the oven dark, 
and then the larger stockroom dark. I think there is no tense for this, how he rubs his palms into his eyes, then slides his bony shoulder and thin face toward the light of the narrow doorway, the long aisles just out of sight, and then turns slowly back. Land of transactions, of tactics, sirens, cries. It is what waits outside this dark and doesn't want to know this dark. Aisles of clocks, of kitchenware, Venetian blinds. He looks up from the dimness and damp brick, his eyes drifting where? Before me, into what abrogation, what refusal of earthly terror, earthly place. Living Color by Lorishek. At first there is greenish flesh, until the knobs turn farther to the right, and then the flesh turns paler, pink. The gray walls behind the silent faces shimmer, and next the sounds turned up. The lips are moving, the hands, the voices rising, moving. Is this what fright is, these pale, interchangeable faces? Is this the body of the world that can be seen but never touched? The faces floating there, the hands, and all the broken things? The set casts its flickering light onto the walls. As the ghost bodies, dressed in their momentary garments, bend to kiss the gleaming armor of the world. They have given themselves over to quickness, to sound bites, to thirty or sixty second spots. How slow we are against them, who dream of change, but rarely, finally, change. Now the man is walking toward the woman. He sits down beside her on the bed, the walls pale gold, the bedspread flowered gold. On her dresser are many small bottles delicate, long-stemmed vials, perfume and makeup. And on the wall above it, a mirror that holds them from behind, showing us what the man and woman cannot see, of who they are, the man's broad back in his striped suit, the woman barely covered by a negligee, her brown hair tumbling down, as if they had no names as if they had no faces, no address. But she lifts her face to him, and her skin is smooth as the gold lamplight falling in a calm, closed circle on the carpet, so that we are meant to think it is important to know what happens next. But how grotesque they appear when I turn off the sound, trapped in a world where speech is ceaselessly required in which mouths move and move, but nothing can come out. And still they keep on moving, the way neon pulses on and off, on and off, against a wall. No stillness there, no rest. 
and no one can be left alone for long. If the woman stands at her window, it is clear soon enough someone will come knocking on her door. There is no room for silence. I turn off the set. I watch the dark, blank screen, how it holds only the merest shading of a face, barely there, but still it's there, no sound at all, no humming sound, no hushed electric purr, just blank, like the door a child wakes to in the night, the voices shimmering and slurring on the other side, in darkness, but there is no screen to hold them, making them its ghosts. There is no way to shut them off. This is From the Book of Persephone, Part 4, by Laurie Shack. The river is quiet now, and dark, as if inside it another world were sleeping, a world a child might dream, in which the stars are not constrained within their farness, but bend to touch the child's skin, its face moth-gray, and the hours before morning. One night, when I was small, I peeked into a lamp-lit room, quiet as this river, to see through milky glass the grown-ups talking. I thought of the laws they had made. They had told me there were laws, and how those laws hadn't rescued the shivering ones from their cardboard homes in winter, or the ones who wandered babbling through the park conducting an invisible orchestra with a stick, or the ones who went rummaging through trash cans, looking, it seemed, not just for food, but something treasured and lost track of long ago. The grown-ups' faces shone in the untroubled light. How strong they looked, as if their power were a form of armor. But the longer I watched them, the more they became strange creatures to me, owners of a language I couldn't understand. What secret sorrows wandered like gold threads beneath their skin? What jealousies and falseness? On the table were long-stemmed glasses, plates of cheeses and green apples, bottles of red wine. I walked out to the edge of the field, though I knew I was supposed to be asleep, to touch the trees that knew no human laws, no secrets, encircling them like wire. How frail the house looked from that distance, the portraits on its walls, remote and small as postage stamps on envelopes that soon would be discarded. So that I thought the ones inside talked not for company but for shelter, not wanting to look down at their hands in the night alone, where each year the blue veins rose more plainly 
towards the skin's mottled surface. I knew a lamb slept in the shed. Walking back to the house, I thought I heard it crying, bleeding, as if it were in pain, and I imagined the night carving a terrible bright eye onto its body, an eye that couldn't close and couldn't ever be removed. Learning to Read by Laurie Scheck I know there is something that mocks us, and it is cold and distant and cannot be hurt. Even the grown-up's hands are small against it. More and more, night twines its ragged threads into my hair. I hear the racked branches, ruined stars. But here, in the primer, it is different. The sun is yellow, its face is round and smiles. The leaves are oval, green, and beneath them, five letters clump together, forming the word green, so that it stays like a metal toy train on the whiteness. As if it didn't ever want to leave, it must have traveled far to get here, and now, its engine stilled, it lingers beneath a sky steady, blue, and safe. For now, the words are orderly, black barrels, lacquered boxes, shelves, each page an outstretched palm, holding a dollhouse's willfully protected treasures. For now, they take me in where the brokenness can't find me. The house is red, the cat is gray, the girl is running and jumping in the grass. I do not know yet how the words will hiss and tremble on other fuller pages, how they'll shatter and creak, or how they'll harbor an unspeakable wildness inside them, like a bird crazily flinging itself against plate glass, or how they'll become an insomniac's wandering tale, and hands into which I must place again and again the remote and human blankness of my hands. These are the deep black shapes of remembrance and forgetting. Years, and the pages thicken with more words, become a forest, a maze of displacement, a wrecked lullaby, a beautiful and fierce derailment. Becoming a child's face forever staring through a window's shattered glass. A murderer's knife. A slashed canvas. Deepest black of disfigurement and healing. Soft lips on a forehead leaving no trace of their kiss. Gravestones in snow. A mouth obsessively unnaming what it's known.
Mummy by Laurie Shack. Mummy girl unearthed now, your wrappings fraying, gray, your hands stiff with vigilance, we have not let you go. The waters pearl and sway beyond you. My glassy face in the case above you watches. Outside the cars go by, their sounds touching you like poisons. You who meant to stay so far away, to stay so deeply hidden. But we lifted you out of your hiding place, where the papyrus buried beside you held the words you would have spoken as you journeyed from this earth. I am the knot within the olive tree, the branch of the tamarisk, beautiful, gone forth and going forth. No harm will come to me, my face is open, my wishes are all open, O oh, never-setting stars. Over the lake of flowers, it is quiet now, it is quiet. In the boat that carries the souls with bandaged mouths, the dead ones are removing their bandages. They untie the tight cloths that bind their mouths. The boat is a knife cutting through the starry blackness. Can you hear the water parting for its prow, its rudder shuddering so softly where it's hidden? That year I was sick and stayed in my room, I thought of you, so tightly sealed in your glass case. I closed the blinds and asked the sickness questions. Why can't the light grieve? What is the proper sowing now that there is no place for the harvest? What is the proper sowing now that the harvest is over? The rose moldering, the rose unkempt and tangled, overgrown and trampled over. I thought of you like a dance lifted out of the dark, whirling so fast you seem to just stay still. Each tapering finger bone, articulate and ripe with emptiness. And your face bandaged over, and your feet bandaged over, while beside you the text tacked up on the wall explained where you had gone, where you must journey, but it was full of losses, gaps. Here the papyrus is torn, here it is broken off in mid-sentence. A jet buzzes overhead, a grating foreign music you never meant to hear, touching your bandaged skin as it passes. An office telephone rings, an answering machine clicks on, clicks on, while all around you the light is knifing the words, I meant never to return, and knifing the words hath nursed me, and I am far away now, journeying. I lean above you with my hands that will soon be nothing, and my face that will soon be nothing, tilting in the shallow glass and white fluorescent lighting, my body echoing your own as I lean further and further towards your shutness that is saying, here I am torn, here I am broken off in mid-sentence.
Morning Walk by Laurie Sheck The clouds thin, dismantling their muffled kingdom. If there is anything frantic here, it is hidden. Ant cities, leeches. There are ferns on either side of the road, ferns tall as my knees, and wild roses. The darkness is not powerful now. It recedes as the light rises over the hill, and the fields open. It is a weak, hemophiliac prince, too delicate to last the morning. It will inherit nothing. The road is dirt. I can see a car in the distance churning dust. Two heads propped up in front. Two heads anonymous as doorknobs. It is this brown road which persists, winding the valley and hillsides like a good rope. I learn the names of wildflowers as I walk. Stargrass, bowman's root, orange hawkweed, wild indigo, pink aster. I will press them in my book so that they will look back at me one day from a building's staticky pallors, the fevered, sizzling blur of flashing traffic. They are what remains when The mist burns off and the storm clouds lighten. What I push with my fingers resists, less elliptically than sorrow. Tree bark, leaves. There is such skill in their plainness, in such direct resistance. From the crest of the hill, it is easy to see the long fields, the white and brown milk cows herded from one pasture to another. What the mind fears is itself, how it attacks itself with its cunning battalions and clandestine maneuvers and its spies, its spies, its spies. Its silences are not like this. They are hard and sharp as metal. And the mind's sky is not blue gold but steely white, fiercely spiked and infinitely splintered or black as hysterical blindness, as if each inch of this land had been turned over, its underneaths the only visible thing, wormy and moist and swarming with torn roots. Sycamore by Laurie Shack. Each day on my morning walk I see you, gray-white among other green-leaved trees and lilies, stiff, cataleptic, hardened in an attitude of writhing, seized out of the sizzling climacteric, witch-girl, barren sister, with long, thick trunk and bent hacked branches, you are contorted as the escape artist found still chained, and with his heart stopped in the locked vault he vowed he could break free of. I am not your jailer, though my keys jangle in my pocket as I walk. First the fields grew mirrory with buttercups, then the orange hawkweed arrived, fervently lighting the green hills. 
only you remain skeletal, marking the dirt road with your glacial amputations, your desperate, freeze-framed dance, stripped clean of tremor. What shriek is kept back in you? What cry? And secrets, secrets, cold and blank as panic. Your roots are tucked in the moist soil, and yet you starve. Your branches leafless, though the wind blows through them, invisible as headache. The wind that makes itself visible, but not in you. What is harm but a form of enforced stillness? Prisoner, sister, you no longer break and rage, but accumulate layers of whiteness. Tight morning cloths, wrappings, each rising wing shadow pulsing away from your body. How long will you stand in this vacant, rigid trance? What farness summons you? What grief? In my sleep, I see you burning. The Leper Colony by Laurie Sheck Dearest sisters, today a man in a brown suit arrived to visit us. He wore long gloves and took our photographs to document the progress of how we vanish from this earth. Also, we were made to wear wet plaster casts and waited calm in the bright air for them to harden their white hindrance over us. When they dried, he cut them from our limbs with something that looked like a palette knife or scalpel. He will carry them back to the mainland to study them, far from this promontory thrusting its sharp volcanic rock into the sea, far from us. Days I watch the drawn-out wakes of steamers, their languorous, dropped veils riding the green water. Distance is theirs, and benign to them still. The passengers can't see my tiny garden of sweet potatoes, kale, sugar beets, and onions, or how, in the black miles behind our clearing, birds swoop and flutter from their steep and posing cliff their wings cutting through this odd, unanswering poverty in which the green leaves flourish as we sicken. Sometimes, it is hard for me to say this, but it's true, we chop our fingers off to be rid of them more quickly. It doesn't even hurt. And after they are off us, the bloated worms still curl there, feeding but mostly we arrange our Sunday bonnets and mend as best we can our favorite frocks, the ones with bits of lace or pale cloth roses. We garden and read and look out at the sea. If there is self-slaughter, it is through immolation only. 
This only happened twice. Who would not dream of burning? We have started a small farm with a few cows and goats and chickens, and last week a tiny calf was born. I have a mongrel dog. It plays beneath the lines of drying laundry. At night it sleeps beside me. I am not harmed to it. Its hair is coarse and dry, the color of old straw, and trees feed on the stingless air. What is a face but the way we travel away from ourselves, baffled and afraid? The way we cannot stop or turn things back? I wake and feel my little dog beside me, breathing, and reach to stroke its simple ears that curve like a clear, unbroken pathway, safe and cool in the deceiving air. View of the Asylum Garden by Laurie Shack. These trees feed on the stars. There is such a strong willingness in their bodies. I look out my window and watch how the place called Outside is made of many parts. Why are the silences it leaves behind sometimes electrified, trembling like static? and at other times serrated, cold, hard, and sharp as a split geode, and at other times spidery, skittering over the bare walls. But always they are mirrorless, mirrorless. I don't know how so many disparate pieces can manage to cohere, yet they cohere. The poppies, for instance, why don't they shatter the dull surrounding grass? and the chestnut trees lifting their white veils above the walkway, and the poplars, the stone bench. They want nothing from each other, but stand side by side, simply, without rancor. Together they form something larger and stronger than themselves, and the sun comes to them, touching them harshly or softly, each one of them the same. If I look at the garden wrongly, fear lingers in the branches. There are eyes and glinting needles in the leaves. So that I think I must not be mistrustful, but let the garden guide me. As when I was very small, and I could feel the alphabet settling bit by bit inside my body, shuddering, unfolding, opening within me its curious, inclusive arms. How it carried me into the morning, and into the dark, and past the dark. These walls are stiff as vigilance. The white curtains blow against them, and I remember not to be afraid, they are so soft. And I remember to feel the strange comfort of all that survives. Now someone is walking through the courtyard. I can't see his face at all, 
only how the chestnut trees line the path he walks on, soft whites and palest greens above him. I watch him pause, then stoop to pick an iris from the dirt and slip it in his pocket. Does he stroke it in the way an infant strokes its mother's neck for comfort? I remember seeing Giotto's frescoes in Padua, how the childless man, cast out from the temple, cradled a tiny lamb in his arms, and how the other lambs gathered around him and looked at him kindly, despite the barren rock behind him and the rows of houses shutting him out of their doors. It was as if it was important to those lambs that the man still desired to remain on this earth, and they knew if he reached out to touch the softness of their separate bodies, he wouldn't choose to turn away from the world. Look, it is dusk now. I am so small. It is so long ago. I can feel the alphabet sifting piece by piece into my body, the stars of it, the grass, the ABCs, the singing wind and water, all the disparate parts falling deeper and deeper through my ribcage, while the curtains blow and sway from the window's wooden casement, like sentences whispering, wandering, threading themselves into the dark. One of the best single collections of poetry I've ever read is Laurie Sheck's 1996 book, The Willow Grove, and perhaps because the earliest poems I wrote as a teenager happened to be about driving at night on the freeways, listening to talk radio or to music, I've always been partial to Laurie Sheck's poems about driving, and one of these is called Headlights. Night, and I watch from the side of the river, the cars inching forward, a line of white headlights like the white-tipped canes the blind put out before each step, tapping down onto the otherness, the world. The insides of the cars were dark, the windows dark. I couldn't see how flesh is taken up into the distance, enthralled by them, by the ahead, only the lights lifting the silver of the cables the bridge's skeletal wires, then putting them back down. How the cars bunched at the toll booths, one clotted, edgy slowness, while in the car at the front of each line a hand, I couldn't see it, but of course it would be there, rolled down the small window and reached out with its ticket and its bills, the other hand opening to receive them, sorting out the coins for change, the bright silver faces enshrined in each small sphere, quarters, nickels, dimes. Then the hand rolling the window back up, the faces floating behind it as if not attached, as music from the toll booth pulses over the toll taker's fingers, drumming on the register, 
and then the barriers lifting, letting them pass through. Now they must be moving past the landfill, past the gulls. Are they asleep? Where are their nests? That poke down into the stinking garbage heaps by day, and the flames from the refineries, burning at all hours, like the flame on the assassinated president's grave. Maybe a radio is on. Yes, it must be on. A talk show. A voice saying, bomb them, to teach them a lesson. And then the click as he hangs up. The hollowness of air for just one second. A commercial for Pepsi. A commercial for beef. Rain. Guardrails. Rest stops. Rain. More rain. While headlights burn through the rearview mirror as if pinned there. But by what? A hand reaches for the dial to keep the sound from fading, the announcer's words breaking up in the staticky thickness until another voice comes on, and then it too strays off in jagged pieces, slurred pauses, mangled sounds. The dashboard glows in the darkness, the green numbers of each gauge, each clock face glowing. The night is filled with them, these dashboards, and the eyes that turn toward the white-lined roadways that yield so little, not shapes, but the memory of shapes, as if the gods had taken back the world and the terrible innocence of flesh glides forward in the sealed and heated cars, the music playing, marking time, over the notion of home, over the riven, vanished earth. Streets by Laurie Sheck The child sleeps in her crib. Before she was born, I watched through the bars of my basement windows that cut the slabs of neon-tinctured light into small prisons, the feet hurrying forward, and the scattered newsprint reeling like severed wings across the pavement. Long ago, in another city, I washed my doll's white dress and hung it on the line to dry, where it stiffened bright and smooth with cleanliness. The child's face in sleep is like that, so that it frightens me sometimes, the way all wandering seems to vanish from her body. In the Chronicle of Cities, I hold in my hand, it says that one day, not far from now, there will be just one city, and it will be continuous, and in the end will suffer nothing but itself. The child's child will walk there, I suppose, over concrete footpaths lining the long loops of highways, and through the series of nearly identical central squares, and the neon streets repeating themselves endlessly. On this page of the Chronicle of Cities it is written, Costumes, even faces, will adjust to a background of stone. We will take the city within us into the mountains and to the sea. 
we will lose the country inside ourselves and will never regain it outside. Even now, I can feel a rigid angularity beginning to construct itself within me, like the corner of a building. Though I still hear the rain in the trees, and the sparrows' voices rising from a trembling background of white noise. The child's face is a map. It is a lantern, a frail, translucent page of penciled drawings. I gave her a name with a gentleness like rain, a name like wind moving through an olive grove in summer. Soon she will start speaking her first words. In spring her father will lift her onto his shoulders, and she will see her face in the prismed glass of the tall buildings, where it will float as if lifted away from her forever, and divided over and over. Cypresses by Laurie Sheck So much is hidden by lies. Is that why the cypresses are beautiful, green-black and without pretense, rising plainly from the furrowed hillside? They flare upward with such stark, untroubled radiance, so that it seems a strange tenderness to me, how they do not recoil, do not bend, how they are undefeated. From far off, they are stiff obelisks, ancient funerary steles, but up close there are small turns in them, winding crevices and byways, briefest detours breeding in the greens, doorways, pathways, stairs. They are like eyes that have known a harsh astonishment, yet still don't turn away from the suddenness that claims them. Seeing them, I think of the Chinese scholars who left their government posts and walked off into the mountains, watching the sun rise and the sun set, boiling some rice and water, a little gruel, feeling the coldness seep into their bodies, the pages thinning year by year between their fingers, the sound of human voices growing more distant and more strange, like foreign cities in an atlas, until something like a cypress tree rose up inside them, some stalwart spine or spire, around which the mountain light brewed and gathered. Or I think of the girl who can't force herself to speak, who believes she is a lily rising from a pond's thick surface, but a brown spot is spreading on her petals, a stain the shape of a cigarette burn or a tack, and still her petals keep on opening, and still she can't erase the stain. She walks to the window, 
the cypresses are there, still there, and she turns her mute face to them completely, as if they knew her secret, as if they must understand why she can't bring herself to speak, as they shine green, black, and pure, where she can't touch them. See by Laurie Shack. I watched the water, the stilled bay. I thought I heard it speaking, slightest murmur and faint rush beneath the stillness, as it lay constrained in its temporary straitjacket, not hospital white, but a slick purple black, as if dyed for disguise. It spoke without a mouth or tongue or voice, like a terror-stilled face, like a burn. And then the wind picked up, its surface shuddered and then swelled as it moved in the pantomimed language of children, the ones who haven't yet come to mistrust their own eyes. Over and over it assembled and undid brief patterns of darkness and light, that would become discarded portraits of itself. Underneath, the fishes swam, anemones and urchins clutching and released like fever. Fists and blades were opening then shut, tentacles, locked trunks. But at sunrise the sea was a signal, the burnished surface of a god composed of multitudes of shining, bee-stung eyes. Dawn comes and goes, like a woman rising from her bed and then returning, the sheets softening with use and dreaming. Daylight, like a pox, where the rocks lie like beggars, so publicly exposed. And at night there's the moon's brightness, siphoned off by the shore lights, as if sickening. The low roofs of the beach houses sleek and poised as haunches that don't spring, that won't ever, ever spring, while a light green fluorescence spreads beneath the landscaped trees. If we are a desperate exactitude, moving like clotted traffic over the earth, seeking a truer waywardness, an ever truer waywardness, scouring and scouring our hands that have grown muddied while feeling somehow there is a cleanliness inside us after all, a space almost unutterably and hurtfully clean, untouched by fraud or stubborn pettiness or mind's infection. How can I not turn to watch you, see, to all that is not counterfeit in you, as you lie in your shining body, no human doubt can eradicate or alter, nor naming, nor misnaming, harm. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, 
at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.